You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, have you ever done a, a simulation that you found like life changing or something that really you know hit you? Yeah, you know, I mean, in simulations, I feel like the thing I hear most about is the simulations gone wrong, right? Like right. simulations people shouldn't do. But yeah, like I the did, slave was, auction slavery, right? Like the slave auction simulation. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Yeah, it seems like a bad idea. I'm not an expert in simulations. The thing I'd always told my classes, though, was like, don't use simulations with historical, really, or any trauma. Right? Yeah. Because like, it seems like if a simulation is meant to simulate what was happening in some way, you don't want your kids to experience the trauma that people felt right. historically. And also, they couldn't. So, like, it fails historically. Yeah, on a number of different levels. And I feel like that's like the middle passage or, yeah, let's see what the middle passage was like, was like by getting in small areas which mm-hmm. seems really silly like that's not simulating anything yeah or the i mean the, i've heard of the, the holocaust boxcar stuff that you know has been done and so yeah you've heard about those when i think about simulations i think a lot about what makes them effective and yeah. i think they're hard because it's like less clear than not other forms of knowledge right like knowing something about a place like i think simulations do something very different so I struggle to understand exactly what they do and where the ethical lines are and like what makes them effective. But I really did have a kind of life-changing experience in a simulation. I went to the University of Oklahoma and my advisor there, I've mentioned him several times, was Neil Hauser. And he ran a sim- simulation there called Star Power, which was basically a trading game. But the trading game simulated all kinds of inequities in society. Mm-hmm. And his role in leading the game, he kind of echoes a lot of those messages that we send people about try harder and you'll succeed, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And then the thing is, is as you fail in the game, he keeps saying it. And, and then it becomes like, trite. Yeah, and, well, and it just becomes kind of insulting. Yeah. And then also, like, you get characterized in the game. Basically, the game has rigged bags. And so some people are, have, like, rigged bags at the beginning of the game, which is, you know, a metaphor for the rigged bags we have, the privileges the, in all kinds of ways in life, and whether it's identity or money or whatever it is. I feel like I need a little bit more background. Like, what – you talked about ripped bags. What, are you, what is this thing doing? Like, did you mind explaining it a little bit more? Yeah, so – Basically, the the game is a trading game and you trade chips and the chips are different colors and they have different values, right? So there's five different colors of chips. Gold chips are the most and blue chips are the lowest values. And so in the game, the bag, there's there's three bags, the students sit in three groups and each bag has chips in them and one group has a bag that's layered with gold and green chips. One has like a kind of like a lot of middling chips and the other one has a lot of you know, blues in it. Right. So, so in short, you get these hands and then you're told to play the game. Well, the game was kind of rigged from the beginning. You don't tell students that necessarily you could, but, but you don't have to. And so you start playing and it just is kind of depressing if you're losing, but you see all kinds of reactions from students. And so when I first played this, I was angered at the the injustice of the game. And as someone who grew up with a lot of privileges, right, I feel like I understood that there was injustice yeah. in many ways, but this was a new way of understanding it, kind of an affective way of being like, that's really wrong. Yeah. And so you play through the game and it really can get pretty intense. Like as the instructor, you can, the, the degrees to which you take it are always really 
hard choices to make. Pick um, yourself up by your bootstraps, Dan. Right. And so the people who are lowest in the game eventually get labeled triangles. And so the thing is, is if they make any mistakes or aren't, are taking too long to make a trade or whatever, you interpret it through that lens. So it's kind of like the brown eye, blue eye, Jane Elliott experiment that's kind of well known where she she judged kids based on their eye color and used that as a, a way to talk about stereotyping. Yeah. So the game was really powerful. And I've taught it about 15 times. We used it at OU and I've used it a little bit since then. Because it allows you an opportunity, in my opinion, to talk about the ways that inequities and power structures exist in society. It gives you, you know, it's kind of like a storybook in a way. Like a storybook allows you an opportunity to talk about things through that lens. This gives you an opportunity to talk about injustices. And students start bringing it up personal examples. So at the end of it, you, you debrief, you talk about that it's just a game, and then you have these discussions about what it is and uh, what you just did, and, and you clear the air. And then you start talking about historical connections, contemporary connections. And students share all of these ways that they see injustice in the world. So it allows for these really powerful conversations. But I always struggle with the boundaries. Like, where's the line? When yeah. is too much? When are you I adding, doing... like, when are you reminding people of these things that might they might be facing or have faced in their life? Yeah, and how does it affect students who have privilege and how does it affect students who already have faced a lot of inequities right. in their life and, and are, you know, so it's a, it's a hard thing to answer. And so I think the easy thing is to not do any simulations, right? Because those those questions are hard to answer. I see a lot of those people on Twitter who are like, oh, all simulations bad. Yes, yes, which I, I definitely don't agree with that. And all simulations are not as effectively powerful as this one. Yeah. There's lots of simulations that do just help you understand. Oh, I've seen people do like the Treaty of Versailles where they're characters from uh, negotiating the Treaty of Versailles. And so that's a simulation. I've seen the Rethinking Our Schools. They did one on if the Constitution was, the Constitution Convention was made up of folks who weren't actually there. So like women uh, and Native Americans. Like, what type of constitution would they make? And so that's an interesting simulation that is, well, that I don't I don't think it would be as problematic, although I'm not 100% sure. That's, I often feel that way myself. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. And so it makes me not sure what to do. Right, right. Yeah, I think maybe we should bring somebody on who's thought a little bit more about simulations than us, and maybe they can provide us some answers or at least some things to think about. Do you have someone in the studio there? live live with me here in person recording we'd like to welcome Corey wright maley into the podcast hi thanks for having me Corey wright maley we're here. thrilled to have you there or over there and um yeah literally so so Corey's actually here with me in denton texas he came and visited us it's actually pretty cool we're at a conference and i was telling Corey about this exact simulation that i described to you and i was like it's really interesting i don't know what to do you should study it and he goes okay and then he contacted me you know Several, like probably six, eight months later and said, okay, I'm going to come out. And I go, great. And so he actually like took me up on, on the offer. And, and so he's out here visiting and has been running some simulations with our pre-service teachers here at UNT. Oh. Corey, you are proof that you can make friends after the age of 30. <laughs> <laughs> Corey, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Yeah. So currently I'm an associate professor of education at St. Mary's University in Calgary, which is situated on Treaty 7 lands, which for those of you who, who may not be from the area would recognize as traditional Blackfoot territory. And it's also home to the Tsutina and Stony Nakoda peoples, as well as the Métis Nation 3. And so um, 
I, I was born and raised in Calgary and, you know, eventually got back there. But I started my teaching career in Redwood City, California, and started using simulations. And some of them seemed to work really well, and others failed terribly. And I couldn't ever quite figure out why that was. And there wasn't any great information out there as far as I could find that gave me any guidance on what makes a simulation work, when is a simulation appropriate to use, and when is it not appropriate to use. And so when I had the chance to pursue my PhD in social studies education, it was an opportunity for me to explore that and, and try to figure that out. And we appreciate your uh, ability to, to work to right that wrong. <laughs> Thank you. So before we get any further, do you have a good working definition, maybe, or maybe you just have your definition, of, of simulations? What is a simulation? Yeah, yeah. I think it's helpful to start with what a simulation isn't, because, you know, in my experience, teachers tend to use the word simulation to describe a lot of different things. And I found that teachers are often talking across purposes about them. So sometimes they're using role plays or models or games and calling them simulations. So the negotiating of Treaty of Versailles of role play, not a simulation. Well, let's come back to that in a moment. I'll give you the definition and then we can talk about what you've seen with that because there's ways in which it could be a simulation and ways in which it, it could simply be a role play. The difficulty with the definition is that a lot of these concepts have overlaps. So you might have a role-playing simulation or a simulation game and because you can't totally extract any of those, those concepts from one another. I'm really appreciative of the person who invented the Venn diagram because I always feel like I immediately understand how things overlap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Like it's like, a, it's like a visual for understanding what you said. I'm, in my mind, I just went simulations, role plays, and there's something in the middle, and then there's differences. Yes, absolutely. That's his, name was, his last name was Venn. Yeah, I know that. Frank Venn. I don't know if that's his first name. Somebody look that up. <laughs> <laughs> so the definition I've come up with is that they're ped pedagogically mediated activities used to reflect dynamism of real life events, processes, phenomenon in which students participate in, as active agents whose actions are consequential to the outcome of the activity. So that's a bit of a mouthful. But to break that down a little bit is that they should be activities that represent some function of real life, the, a process, something that is interactive and dynamic. And by dynamic, I mean that the decisions students make actually have the possibility of altering the outcome. And so they're not just following lockstep through play-by-play -play of a role play, but they might be given roles in which they have to make decisions on their own and each time you run that, it would come out a little bit differently. And that they're not passive observers. They're not watching a demonstration of something happening. They're participating themselves. They are the actors in the event. And finally, that as the teacher, we're navigating the decisions that they're making and helping massage the decisions that students make without interrupting their freedom to make those decisions and bringing them back together to debrief so that we know that they are coming away with the lessons that we intended them to, to derive from the simulation. Do you know where simulations came from? Was there a John simulation? No, there wasn't a John simulation. And simulation, um, 
really comes out of literature and science in particular. And the earliest social simulations come out of the 1960s in social studies, studies research. And, and I, can, I can draw a link to that. Cool, cool. Ooh, I, I, did, love I do want to see the link. Oh, is there a John Sim or a Frank Sim? Whenever I like make a joke that I make that joke a lot, like computer was invented by John Computer, right? Like a lot of times. <laughs> and I definitely should use feminine names too to represent a variety of things. It actually was John Venn. That's the guy's name. It wasn't Frank, as I said earlier. So that was breaking news on the Visions of Education podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about simulations in the social studies? What makes them effective? What makes them ineffective? And how many people are doing them? More and more people. Uh, it is actually really hard to find people that are, are using simulations that actually meet the definition of what a simulation is. So you'll talk to a lot of teachers and they'll tell you they're doing simulations, but then when you dig a little deeper, they're not really doing simulation, they're doing a, a role play or they're doing a demonstration for students. And so when I was doing my dissertation, it was really difficult. I solicited participants from a pool of about 230 regional teachers. And out of the teachers that were available, three were really doing simulations. Interesting. Do you mind briefly just talking about what their role play looked like and why that was not a simulation and why it wasn't? So let me give you an example of one that I used to use. And this was one that always kind of fell flat. It was a French Revolution simulation. And Michael I love it already. <laughs> and or so it was called. But really, they were given roles in the various estates and their actions were prescribed by their note cards. So they would walk through and say, OK, this is what I have to do now. And students would often reject that and say, well, no, I, I don't want to do this. I would, I, would I would do something else. I would like to keep my head on my body. <laughs> yeah, or I think this is unfair and I wouldn't treat the peasants this way. And so students would resist this uh, very static role that they were given in anachronistic kinds of ways. And then we get to the end and they just kind of shrug their shoulders because to them it was just a big waste of time. We just acted out what they could read in the textbook. And so that's the kind of simulation that we that teachers often talk about is a simulation. But really, without the agency, students aren't learning about the dynamics that took place during the French Revolution. I think that makes sense. Michael, should we give kids agency and tell them to act out the French Revolution? You think that's oh a good idea? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's a very bloody time. <laughs> so one of the simulations that uh, teachers who did become enrolled in the study were doing. One was doing a model UN style simulation, but it was built throughout the course. So throughout the course, they jumped from one global issue to another as a UN decision-making body. And they had to try to resolve the problem, but had to be faithful to the positions of the countries that they represented. And each time, the students participated in one of these. They had to resolve dilemmas and problems and issues that existed that made solving those problems difficult. And often there was conflict within the simulation in order to try to resolve that. And they had to continually make compromises in order to come to a resolution on how to solve issues like malaria, for example, 
was one of them, the malaria epidemic. Another was the South, South Sudan crisis. So in that particular thing, if they have, you know, their country cards, is that similar to, how is that not similar to the French Revolution where they have like their parts to play? So you can think about it this way. Students are given some constraints on what would be representative of real life. So what's called verisimilitude. So simulations, the closer they are to reality, the more representative of the understanding students are going to pull out of it. So you can think of the limitations on what someone from China or representing China might feel about a certain issue. But ultimately, the decisions aren't made for the students. The students still have the agency to make the decisions within the constraints of their particular role. So they can choose to cooperate or, or compete. They can choose to work with certain nations but not others. They can work to undermine the, the proposals of adversaries. So it's not just like you're the second estate, you must vote against the third estate. That's just right. like the first estate. That's right. <laughs> so what are some of the most powerful simulations you've seen both the specific ones and like what made them what care what made them powerful or effective in your mind yeah well one of them was my own and this is what really drove my ultimate interest in simulations was as a high school teacher i taught modern european history and i was really growing tired of answering the question why wouldn't people stand up to hitler i would i would stand up to hitler and I would nod and say, of course you would. And so I worked very closely with my administration, with my department chair, and did a lot of research around the ways this could go wrong. You know, if you're familiar with the third wave simulation that took place in the 1960s in Palo Alto School. I'm frightened already of where this is going, but... Yeah, yeah. I read that book. It's a good book. It is a good book. Help me understand simulations gone wrong also. Absolutely. It's kind of the Stanford prison experiment of high school. Yeah, yeah. So what happened in this wave simulation? It's been a little while since I've read the book, so I don't remember all the details. Yeah, the wave simulation, or he called it the third wave, really was setting up a Hitler youth in a lot of ways without the kid's knowledge of what he was doing. Oh God. And so psychologically, he manipulated them into this movement and kids got kicked out of this third wave. There was violence on campus around it. And there was a lot of pressure from the administration and from other teachers because it was actually really getting out of control and kind of dangerous. And then he called this meeting where he said, you know, the the national leader of the wave is going to speak tonight. You can all come to the gymnasium. And then he put on a video of a, a Hitler speech. And everyone was horrified. And, these, and, you know, he used this as an unveiling of his, his big truth that anybody can be indoctrinated. But in the meantime, these kids were, you know, psychologically compromised. That's crazy that they all went to the gymnasium after school. <laughs> yeah, is that that's what you're really surprised yeah. by in all this? Oh. They showed up for an after no, the whole event. thing. But still, it... <laughs> all right, I apologize. So obviously, you are not going to do anything like that. 
No, no, I really did not want that to happen. <laughs> so well, I'm hoping some of the neo-Nazi, you know, rise that we have in the country right now is just a simulation. It's going to end very soon. Oh, God. It's a little too realistic of a simulation. Yeah, it is. if you're somebody's putting on a simulation, quit. It's getting uh, too real. Quit being Nazis, people. So what I did was I set up a totalitarian simulation in which the student's explicit goal was to overthrow me. So they were to work together. It was them against me. A lot of teachers face that goal every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The worst, worst of that simulation would be if the students didn't notice the difference between dictator you and teacher you. I, I should say, when I've run the star power simulation, I've run it with primarily college students, primarily education undergrads. I ran it in high school, too, and it went really well generally. But every once in a while, I'd have students who had been treated so poorly in school, the simulation didn't affect them at all, that they expected to be treated poorly in the game. And it was very depressing to talk about and like literally led to conversations with them about that educators should not have treated them poorly. So that's yeah, it is. So your totalitarian regime, what is going on and how are they going to overthrow you? And, and will they? I Again, I'm on the edge of my seat. Yeah, so I, I set it up very early on that I overthrew myself. I became maestro. I don't know where that name came from ultimately, but- I feel like Seinfeld. Maybe, <laughs> <laughs> but I came in and I quickly, you know, made it a very didactic class. We talked about propaganda and, you know, while the simulation's going on, all the things that are happening in the usual class are happening. And I had them reading memoirs of people who had lived through totalitarian regimes. Uh, and so one of the things that was key was that I told them that 50% of the unit was based on all of their usual marks. And these were pretty high-performing kids. And that 50% was based on their life points. They didn't know how many points they would start with, but if they got to zero, they would be considered dead and wouldn't have points in anything. So they would get zero for the unit. Now that part wasn't true, but they didn't know that. And so right from the very beginning, students would fell right into line. And the few who stood up to me and said, like, this is unjust, there's no way I would send them to the principal's office and, and say, you know, you've been disappeared. And they would go to the principal's office and the principal would give them a folder saying, congratulations, you got 100% for this 50% of your life. And, you know, turn in your other work. You stood up against injustice and that's what you should be doing. So long as you don't compromise the simulation by telling everyone else to do this. So the principal is now actively against you as well. Well, he's against Maestro. So I had a similar um, kind of simulation. It's, it, well... Maybe it's not even a simulation. This is where I'm trying to figure it out. When I was a student teacher, I did this. And I, I kind of look back at my student teaching, you know, with like I always am like, gosh, I don't know if I knew anything that I was doing. Um, but I did a simulation where I had them take a citizenship test that was used, you know, for voting rights um, that prohibited African-Americans from voting rights in the 1950s. And I think I think I used one from Mississippi, if I remember right. I have to, it's been a, many years. And I had, I fooled them that the, the, citizenship test was a state requirement required test that counted for their grade mm. and that it could affect their standing in graduation and so they took the test and most of them didn't do well and i mean there was like real 
outrage at it at the end. And so then at the end, I told him this isn't real. This was a simulation. I don't know if it actually was one now that we're talking about it. But then we talked about what it would mean to lose something based on an unfair test. And then we talked about, we had conversations about how that happens in school. But then we were able to make the historical links to how that happened in the 1950s and 60s. And I'm almost hesitant to share it because it seemed like an effective experience at the time. But I've had such anxiety about whether I did it right. And I know I didn't know what I was doing then, mm-hmm. whether I lucked into doing something correctly. I, I don't know. But I always am worried whether that was an effective way or if like that experience actually dishonors, you know, the real histories around that, the, those issues, because the consequences were far worse than a single test, right? Mm-hmm. It was your rights mm-hmm. to participate in a democratic society mm-hmm. in far deeper ways. And it also was surrounded by, you know, an institutional racism that, that, guy, you know, constantly was pervasive in, in every aspect of your life. So, so I wonder like, what did we do? And we did, we talked about that. It's not like we did, we pretended like it was the real thing, right? Yeah. We, we, we admitted and understood that, but I don't know. I didn't know if it was effective and it helped them make the point about that, about how, you know, a lot of the laws that exist are not just like, Hey, you can't do this. They're sneaky, right? That's why you have Jim Crow laws because separate but equal said you couldn't just outright say it. So people use these other methods to do it. And that's the point I wanted them to get about how injustice is not always this direct, easy to thing. You have to kind of read between the lines to understand it. But I don't know if it was a simulation or educational. Yeah. <laughs> so the students have broken out of your simulation by standing up to you. Yeah. So the students, one class inevitably would overthrow me, but I would teach four classes of that a semester. And the other classes were pretty content to just wait it out, despite the fact that it it became, you know, increasingly their freedoms were more and more limited in the class. But eventually one would overthrow me and they had to have eight people sign on to a plot. They would have to somehow, without my noticing, put the written plot into a shoebox called the plot box that would be emptied at the end of the week. So they had to carry it out at the end of the, before the end of the week. And then they, one time they tricked me into eating a quote unquote poison cookie. And another time they had, they had, you know, fake assassinated me. And at that point, the simulation would end. I'm glad they didn't try to real assassinate you. Yeah, me too. (laughs) That was very frightening. And a lot of those were rules that were already written out for them to follow and you know plots could had to be nonviolent. they had to be no one could actually get hurt right yeah. oh that's good so how do you know whether it was effective or not and because that, that's kind of i think the question i often get to mm. and like the reason i don't think i would do the you know and i never have i did it in my student teaching the citizenship thing again is because i feel like i didn't know that and i also struggled with like what is this simulating it's not it's certainly not meant to simulate what actually happened at the time mm-hmm. it was meant to with <clears throat> in there have something that they would see as injustice within their own experiences that was the goal right like there would be a test grade that was bad and use that as a, the actual platform so the, the test wasn't meant to simulate historical actions it was more meant to bring about what injustice looks like but I, I don't think I'd do it again because I don't have any way to know whether that was historically appropriate, whether that should be done, whether it should be done for all students, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's certain students who walk into a class with a lot of privilege who maybe would need a simulation in a different way mm-hmm. that students who have already been marginalized in society don't. What are your ways that you evaluate, like when to do a simulation and what makes it effective? Yeah, I think the first thing you need to do is you need to really understand 
what you're trying to simulate and what the goal of the simulation is supposed to be and work backwards from there. And, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that I had seen The Wave, it was a made-for-TV movie in the 1980s based on what had happened. If I hadn't seen that, I, I don't know that I the idea would have occurred to me. But I also did a lot of digging and a lot of research on, you know, how could this go wrong? And what did I need to build in? Who did I need to bring into the fold from a school point of view, from a parental point of view? Parents were well aware in advance of what this was and what, what the purposes were. And students could opt out. And all of these things are really important. But ultimately, I think if you don't have great clarity about that and great consideration for the students, you know, I, I would watch my students very carefully for signs of stress and stop debrief immediately after the class with those particular students that seem to be, you know, either, I wouldn't say in duress, but showing signs of stress and sit down and talk with them, step out of the world to do that. And I think it's a really high bar because teachers don't have training on how to do this work effectively. And I wouldn't recommend it for all teachers to do. Yeah, I definitely think if you're not being extremely thoughtful about it and know your history well mm -hmm. and are reading works critically that, yeah, there's some teachers I don't, I, I don't know if they would do a good job with it without putting the work in. Mm -hmm. One of my colleagues, uh, Parag Joshi, used this really nice turn of phrase that his goal is to get kids close enough to the fire to feel the heat of it, but not so close that they get burnt. And I think that's a really good way of putting that. So close enough to roast a marshmallow. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not quite that close. Okay. Uh, that's definitely, I think, how the star power simulation is, right? Is yeah. that the point is for them to see systemic, you know, injustices within the game. And people get a little angry in the game sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, the people who are, are triangles. And it's actually most of the times in the game you see this form of resistance to the power structures in the game, which it's interesting to have conversations after, like, do we understand resistance to power structures in our society mm -hmm. and why people resist? I'm flashing back. We had a student teacher in another classroom right now who was teaching a class as a totalitarian. And so the teacher just yelled at the students. It was miserable to be a across the hall from this teacher. I shut the door and I asked when it would stop. But I could. I bet the students asked the same question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and what I realized was how exhausting it is to be mean all day. I couldn't wait for the simulation to end. <laughs> Especially as a Canadian. <laughs> so what advice do you have for educators wanting to incorporate simulations in their classrooms? Well, first of all, I think that you need to be cognizant of what you're trying to simulate. And unless you've done a lot of simulation and you have support and training to do the kinds of simulations I've just talked about, I think you should start small. You know, not every simulation is a, is a big simulation. And so, you know, they, they have a lot of benefits to them, but you need to kind of figure them out. You need to try them and play around with the simulations in order to see what works for you and what doesn't. Yeah, all simulations don't have to be these huge things, I guess, right? right. Like, I mean, I think I saw one of the educational sites, I remember posted a blog post about a teacher who wanted to talk about the way 
privilege and advantage work in society. And so just had students play this short game where they threw uh, paper balls into the basket in the front of the room and see how many they made. Well, they did it from their desks. And so students were in you know different distances from the trash can. And so then she just counted it up like everyone was even and then talk, use that as a conversation. So it was really simple and I think didn't take long yeah. um, as a way to make a point in comparison because it's kind of almost just like produces a metaphor for your class to talk about. And so, yeah, I don't know. I guess that would be an example of something simpler. Yeah, I agree. One of the ones that a colleague of mine did that I think was really powerful but really quite simple to do was uh, the plague simulation that we have an article about it in The History Teacher. And the plague sim simulation, as he set it up, was just rows of desks in, in a checkerboard pattern. And he would assign one student who had something under their desk to say, you know, you have the plague. And then the plague would spread throughout the class based on their relative location to the person who had contracted the plague. And then he would use probability to show how the plague spread. And it was really fascinating to see it in action because even though there was this kind of like fake death that really doesn't matter, kids really took it seriously. And when their friends were, you know, died of the plague, they were like, no, <laughs> and were fearful as the plague got closer to them. And then they were able to talk about how this created panic in society, how they tried to resolve problems without the benefits of germ theory and how it went forward from there. So in that case, when you talked about simulations earlier, they students have some kind of agency. What mm -hmm. kind of agency did they have in the plague simulation? How to die. Yeah, in the plague <laughs> simulation, and this is, I think, one of those exceptions, is that in a lot of ways, they had no agency, much like the people in, in medieval Europe, mm. because oh, okay. the disease, disease would spread without agency where the teacher worked agency into it was that as they would repopulate and come back in, those students would have an option of where to sit in this framework. And so those that were kind of paying attention would try to pick a corner seat where they had fewer mm. people they were in contact with. And so there was some agency built in. Unfortunately, we have a little bit of a society-wide simulation that anti-vaxxer parents are putting on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, unfortunately so. What these simulations are not supposed to be real things, everyone. No more white supremacist Nazis, no more anti vaccination. Let's let's just live a good life. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any final advice you want to go to? So the questions I have for teachers to ask as they're thinking about doing a simulation and thinking about the simulation is does the activity represent a real life process, event or phenomenon? Do the actions of my students have the chance to alter the outcomes? Are my students actively involved or are they passive observers? And am I able to use this activity to teach something specific and meaningful about the phenomenon or process that it's meant to represent? Those are pretty good questions and I, I can see those being helpful for teachers trying to figure out the questions I've had. Although I will be honest, I still don't know what to think about the simulations I've done. What, what advice do you have for me? Is it I don't get that. We don't ask that question on this. No, yeah, <laughs> like, no. You what can advice? Ask that. What advice do you have for me? He Dan? really wants to know if he did okay as a student teacher. I have anxiety about it. Yeah, I actually, from my point of view, some people might disagree with me, but from my point of view, I think that that was okay. 
And I think that we are fearful of causing distress for students. We don't want to cause trauma. And there's very good reasons not to do things like the slavery examples that make their way into the news Mm -hmm. almost annually about how kids were traumatized this way. But I think that getting kids to think about how stressful a situation is, is an entry point. Because we know that when people feel things, they remember them. And that connection between the affective aspects of it and the learning aspects are really powerful. And this may help to explain why simulations stick in people's minds years and years later. Right, right. And there's something definitely powerful about that because I remember how I felt the first time I played Star Power at OU. And I remember how I felt towards the instructor who led it to this day. And so there's definitely a lasting effect to them, whereas students, we know students forget a heck of a lot of what happens in schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I think that's that's part of what the work of Walter Parker and uh, Jane Lowe and and their colleagues have figured out, that, you know, simulations can be really powerful, even for things like standardized testing, AP exams, the Regents exam, where there's an incorporation of you know, critical thinking aspects of it. I'm not a big fan of testing myself, but but their their use of simulations incorporated into larger units hmm. really demonstrated for the students who use them that they could improve their outcomes. And this was particularly poignant for kids who were on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum and were lower performing students. They had the greatest amount of growth in these in these areas. So I think there needs to be more than engagement in mind when a teacher is doing simulations. That this shouldn't be used for passing forward content knowledge, but experiencing something that is a dynamic process in the real world. And I think that when you pair traditional forms of teaching or other forms of teaching that are inquiry-based, and meld them with simulations, you start to get a really powerful unit. But the simulation itself acts as a kind of touchstone that you can return to over and over. But the simulation on its own, it shouldn't be a standalone, as far as I'm concerned, if, it, if you want it to be effective. So I'm both incredibly proud of the simulation I put together, but also really reticent to recommend that other teachers take it on. And... I think there's very good critiques that exist about not doing slavery simulations or Holocaust simulations, but there's also arguments for why we might consider certain simulations as they take place with teachers that have appropriate training to do so. And I think the the two main critiques outside of teacher training that are completely valid are ones that talk about how putting students at risk of trauma like Philip Zimbardo's Stanford Prison Experiments or Ron Jones's Third Wave that we talked about earlier. And a number of recent slavery simulations have been called out for this reason. The second idea is that you risk trivializing these deeply important and poignant experiences. And Totten and Feinberg have pointed this out. And I, I think it's a very valid critique, especially if it's done in a way that doesn't really connect to the affective piece very well or doesn't connect the affective to the historical realities and leave students realizing that that they can't possibly understand what it felt like 
to be a survivor of the Holocaust or to be a slave or any of these other aspects that you might want to simulate. And I know the tendency is to tell teachers never to undertake these simulations, but I think it would be better to take Brenda Trofinenko's advice, which is to wait until high school where kids have more emotional maturity to do that. And I think there's two key reasons we might not want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, which is that when these simulations are well run and well managed, students do appear to gain deeper understanding of the events and care more deeply about these events and want to learn more about these events. Simone Schwaber's work on this is a really good example of what is possible when you do have a skilled teacher doing this work. And scholars and media are alarmed by how desensitized our media-soaked youth are becoming to human suffering. And experiences like this may have the ability to act as a kind of affective counterpoint that might act to inoculate students to that desensitization. And that's a bit of speculation, but that may be one reason why we want to continue to have experiences that do trigger this affective moment. That's great advice. Well, Corey Wright Maley, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and have this conversation with you. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Oh, that's a good question. I don't have a strong online presence, but we'll make sure that we have some robust uh, notes to go with the podcast. Yeah. Do you, do you want them to tweet at you any questions they have? Hey, that'd be great. Yeah. yeah. My Twitter handle is at WrightMailey. I like you just went with the last name. That's good there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, we're going to work really hard on these show notes being a resource that has a lot of links to different simulations, how to do simulations, articles about it. So we're really going to put a lot of time in these show notes. So please make sure to look at those if you're trying to investigate this issue. And so just thank you again, Corey, so much for joining us today. We definitely hope to continue the discussion by tweeting at you and just continuing to figure out whether I did that simulation during student teaching okay or not. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative education, or you just want to tell Dan how his simulation went, hit us up at Visions of Ed or on Twitter, Facebook, that mystery place. And of course, if you haven't already, and really, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And you can help us defeat the Apple Podcast algorithms with a five-star review. Take it as a challenge. You can do it. We will read it on the air if you do so. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education Podcast. Signing off.